you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Acts, the second chapter. We'll begin reading at the first verse. When you have it, say amen so I know that you have. Only three people have it? If you have it, say amen. amen. All right. I got to make sure the whole church has it. All right. Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all in one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire which sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven, now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded, because that every man heard them speaking in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born, Parthians and Medes, Elamites and dwellers in Mesopotamia and in Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, in Egypt and in the parts of Libya about Cyrene, and strangers in parts of Libya, oh, oops, and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speaking in our tongues the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed, and were in doubt, saying one to another, What meaneth this? Others, mocking, said, These men are full of mind. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice, and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken unto my words. For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing as it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which is spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens will I pour out in those days my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heaven above, and signs in the air, and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before the great and notable day of the Lord shall come. And it shall come to pass, that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did in the midst of him, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held of it. 
For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover did my flesh rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thy Holy One to see corruption. Thou hast made known unto me the paths of life, thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me speak freely unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne, he, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul would not be left in hell, neither his flesh to see corruption." This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received the gift of the, prom of the Father, the promised Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into heaven, but he saith of himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit on my right hand, until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made the same Jesus whom ye crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and unto your children and to all who are afar off, even as many as the Lord shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his holy word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word. And I confess this morning I am a little nervous because as I think about the glorious marvel of Christ's resurrection and of the gift of the Holy Ghost, of such a gift as the person of the Holy Spirit is. And so, Father, I ask now that you would mercifully grant that you would mercifully grant me to give a good report of this word. And that Holy Spirit, you would apply it mightily to your people. For we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Our text will be found in the 38th verse of the second chapter, which says, Then Peter said unto them, Repent, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Our text appears at the close of the Apostle Peter's discourse to the multitude of Jews assembled in Jerusalem at the Feast of Weeks to keep it. And this was also the first ostensible Christian Sabbath that the Holy Spirit consecrated by his being poured out upon the church. 
the statement of Peter is the answer that he gives to the Jews after they were searched by the thunderbolts of the law of God flashing in their ears. For 49 days, the Jews had remained in a state of sinful lumpishness and carnal stupidity. For 49 days, they were not conscious of the fact that they had committed the most grievous sin that ever a man has committed from the foundation of the world unto its close, and they remained quiet in their conscience. But Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, preaching this discourse, causes their consciences to be so troubled that he does not even offer the gospel to these people. He preaches the law with such strength and power that they cry out to God, what must we do? And this gives us a reminder as we preach the gospel, not just preachers like me or pastors like Pastor Joseph, but every Christian because we're all called to preach the gospel. Go into all the world and preach the gospel unto every creature. We're all called to preach the gospel that before we offer the gospel, that we make sure that we run the sword of God's law so deeply through the inward parts of our hearers so that their filthiness comes out and they can't receive the sword of God's judgment out of their consciences. And this is precisely what Peter does. Man cannot receive the gospel. They cannot know their need of the gospel and until they are made to know their need of the gospel. They cannot be made to see their need of a savior until they know that they have sins that they need to be saved of. And so this is the Petrine approach. Let's observe from uh, the verse, verses 22 through 23. Ye men of Israel, says Peter, hear, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and signs and wonders which God did by him in the midst of you, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. See here how he sets their consciences upon work. The first thrust of the sword is him, Jesus of Nazareth, you have taken, crucified, and slain. That is, you are murderers by proxy and you, are, you have imputed to you by God the sin of blood guiltiness. The second thrust is him, a man approved of God, a prophet who was sent among you, ye have taken, crucified, and slain. How heinous is your sin that you have killed a prophet of God to add sacrilege to murder. The third thrust, him, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you so that he aggravates the circumstances of their sin. Jesus Christ in his ministry was not a secret ministry that happened in a corner. Everyone saw his work. They could not plead ignorance of the mighty works of the Lord Jesus Christ. What the Jews did, they did most wittingly and most willingly, and they cannot omit or mitigate their guilt for the sin of the crucifixion of the Son of God. The first, the fourth thrust is the aggravation of their sin and murder and sacrilege are uh, multiplied further due to the honor of the one who is slain by their hands by putting him on a tree. Let all the house of Israel know assuredly, says Peter, that this Jesus whom ye have crucified, God hath made both Lord and Christ. So not only are ye murderers, 
but ye are Christ murderers. Not only are you Christ murderers, but you are God murderers. But how, uh, of a, how horrible of a sin this is. Fratricide is one thing, but deicide is another. And as one person says in the scriptures, if a man sins against another man, the judge shall judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who shall entreat for him? Peter has set the minds and the consciences of these Jews gathered together in Jerusalem upon work. Thus, see how the disangelion must precede the evangelion. The bad news must precede the good news. The legal terrors must prepare the heart for gospel comforts. Their consciences now awaken to the color of their sin, and their hearts run through with the sword of the Spirit, their lifeblood running out in the divine sword of vengeance and pending over their head, the Spirit now savingly works upon them to convict them of their sin and misery, and working by and with the Word, He makes it effectual to their salvation, so that now they cry out to Peter, what must we do? And we come to those glorious words of St. Peter, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. There are many components of the Apostles' exhortation, uh, but for the balance of our time, we're going to deal with the last part of that expression. We're going to deal with the conclusion of the whole matter, the consequent of the promise which Peter offers, which is, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Let's observe firstly the end proposed, which is that the receipt of the Holy Ghost is the chief end of faith and repentance. He says, repent and be baptized, which is a stands in the way of faith, as it were, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. In other gospel invitations in the book of Acts, this uh, receiving the Holy Ghost is a parallel to the offers of eternal life. So, in the book of Acts, in the 16th chapter and the 31st verse, uh, Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. Where there, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ is put for, where here we have repent and be baptized, and thou shalt be saved is put for, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And again, later on in Acts, Paul says, by him, all who believe are justified from all things, from whence ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. Where there, he says, all that believe, it is put for, repent and be baptized. And all are justified from all things, is put for, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Which leads us to a side doctrine before I get to my main point, that the Holy Spirit is the sum and substance of our salvation. The Holy Spirit is the gift which Christ has procured by his precious blood and pours out upon his people. The Holy Spirit is the hypostatical, the personal love of God the Father and God the Son. He is the grace and peace which proceeds from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the everlasting blessedness of the Trinity. He is everything that our souls desire and crave for. And here, Peter offers on behalf of Christ the Holy Ghost, the sum and substance of all joy, all sweetness, all preciousness to vile sinners. It should have been a great 
in disproportionate gift if we had remained in our integrity. We could never have merited the blessed gift of the Holy Spirit. But now that we are corrupted from the way, that he would still offer to us the gift of the Holy Spirit is mercy beyond compare. Observe secondly the verb which is employed. He does not say, as in other places, that Christ will give you the gift of the Holy Ghost, or as he says to his apostles in the Gospel of John, that the Holy Spirit shall come unto you, but rather he says, ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, intimating thereby that the result of their repentance was their mode of action, was a change in their mode of action. He says, ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Peter makes them the agents. The issue is not that there is anything withholding on the part of God. It is that ye will not receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. If you would but repent and believe, the Holy Spirit is already ready to be poured out upon you. He's already in motion. The river floods have already been unloosed from Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father and pouring the Spirit abroad. Ye shall receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, he says, ye shall receive the Holy Spirit, as though he had said hitherto, you have rejected the Holy Ghost. You have repulsed him your whole life long. You have set at not his counsels, and you would have none of his reproofs. All your life long you have provoked the Holy Spirit. You have rebelled against the Spirit. You have grieved the Spirit. But now, after you have been converted, which is the internal side of, of the act of repentance, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, whereas you have repulsed him only before. God the Father had already done everything that was necessary for men to receive this gift. For he had sent his only begotten Son into the world to execute the office of a mediator, and he had removed his wrath and curse which barred the way of the tree of life from which the Holy Spirit proceeds to his people. He presided over the whole course of Christ's humiliation as judge and umpire and arbiter and received the offering of Christ's active and passive obedience to the tribunal of divine judgment. Justice. He was ready to give the Holy Spirit. God the Son had already purchased the great benefit by his sufferings and death on the cross, a full, perfect, sufficient sacrifice and oblation and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world, and had already poured out the Holy Spirit from heaven. And the expression poured out shows what largesse Jesus gives the Holy Spirit with. It shows how generously he would give out the Holy Spirit to all who would ask him. It is is no problem with the Lord Jesus Christ why men do not have the Holy Spirit. God the Spirit himself was well pleased to be the reward purchased by the meriting of Christ and to be poured out upon wretched sinners in order to renew them. The language of the outpouring communicating that the love which the Spirit of God had to sinful men was such that it was a water flood being held back only by the restraint of divine love and justice so that when the levies of mercy loosed his course, he stampeded with all haste to unite himself to miserable creatures as a vital principle of action, and thus to renew us, revive us, to cleanse us, and to reform us, and to fill us with all the fruits of righteousness, which are unto the praise of God through Jesus Christ." And to the commutation of the benefit uh, was not withheld on God's part after that Christ had died for sinners. So that all that was lacking in his audience was a will. 
All that was lacking in the audience of Peter on that day of Pentecost, the only reason why men did not receive the gift of the Holy Ghost is they did not want to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. When Peter says, you will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, it is as if he had said, you will receive infinite joy. You will receive absolute, inexhaustible blessedness. You will receive hypostatical love without end, without diminution, without mixture. And man says, I don't want to receive that. How foolish we are. There's only lacking oil. Let me give you some Bible to back it up. So because some of y'all looking at me like y'all don't believe me. It says, and I will pray the Father. This is uh, the Lord Jesus Christ in John 16. And I will pray the Father and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. In other words, the spirit was willing, but the flesh was weak until this precise juncture in redemptive history where the Holy Spirit of God overcame the resistance of sinful man to bring him, bring us to himself, whereby we may distill this doctrine. Those who are in a state of nature are indisposed to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Once again, those who are in a state, a state of nature are indisposed to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For who has need to be persuaded to receive a gift? Indeed, a gift of the most excellent sort, uh, but those whose hearts are absolutely obdurate to the giver of the gift, or backward to their own eternal blessedness. But such a person as is backward to his eternal blessedness and obdurate against God is a natural man. To apply the doctrine presented to, by this text, we shall, by the Lord's assistance, first define what is meant by those who are in a state of nature. And secondly, we shall delineate the several motives that repel the natural man from receiving the Holy Spirit. And finally, we shall briefly make use of this doctrine first. What is meant uh, by those who are in a state of nature? Those who are in a state of nature, or as the Bible calls it, a natural man, are all people who are born in Adam and not born again and joined to Christ by faith and repentance. A natural man, and it will be easier for me to describe the natural man uh, in light of why a natural man is called a natural man in scripture than to just give you a textbook definition of a natural man. Amen. So a natural man is called a natural man for two reasons. First of all, he is called a natural man because this is how he is found, this is going to be profound, in nature. It is his default state. The natural man is by nature a child of wrath. A natural man, by nature, is in a state of enmity against God. A natural man, by nature, does not want God in all of his thoughts. It is his default, which shows us, parents in here, and, and as we walk through our Christian life, because as we're going to see, we still have a whole bunch a natural man in us. And so if, if it is a default state, this is a first use to be made of the doctrine, then we can't get the Holy Ghost sitting down. 
you cannot get the Holy Spirit passively because your default state is a state of nature. Your default state doesn't want to receive the Holy Ghost. Your default state does not want to submit to God. And so we must be up and doing about our souls. We must be vigorous in seeking the gift of the Holy Ghost. We must be crying out to God daily and mightily that he does a work in us and for us by the power of his Holy Spirit because a state of nature is the default. Your children are not born in a state of grace. That's why we have to catechize our children. That's why we have to discipline our children. That's why we have to teach our children the Bible. That's why we have to repeat catechisms and repeatedly memorize verses. And that's why we have to do the same things with ourselves because we are not by nature in a state of grace. We are by nature alienated from God by wicked works. The natural man is called natural because his default state is in opposition to the living God. The second reason why the natural man is called the natural man is because the natural man is only conversant about natural things. So when we were first created and we were all federally joined to our head, Adam, uh, God had made man upright. We were positively inclined to God. We had God as our supernatural end. And God wanted us to embrace him as our supernatural end. But when we rejected God, a lot of theologians will say, and I agree that this is a part of the fall, it's not all of what the fall is, but it's a part of what the fall is, that our affections and our wills and our minds fell down to the level of our base appetites. And Paul calls this our God being our belly. What dictates everything in our lives is our carnal desires. What dictates everything in our lives are our sinful lusts, even the religion of the carnal man. Even the religious exercises of the natural man only subserve his carnal lusts. We live only for sight and sense. I believe it wasn't J.I. Packer. It was some theologian whose name I can't remember. He says that men live by our glands. We live by secretions that come from one place or another because all we are conversant about is the things of nature. Even when you're really spiritual and you have all of your wonderful garments on and we have incense and we have candles and we have everything that pleases the outward senses, man's highest heights of religion only serve a natural end. So the natural man is called natural because he doesn't ascend to God as his supernatural. And it's not that we don't deal with things that are supernatural. We're fine talking about angels, and we're fine talking about crystals, and we're fine talking about meditation, and we're fine talking about portals. I learned about portals this past week because people were talking about some crazy, I don't even know what that is. But people were like, oh, honey, we went through a portal, and we just, he just took me there. And we don't, it's not that we don't mind the supernatural. It's that we don't like God's revealed way of coming to himself. We love things that are spiritual in scare quotes. But we do not love God as he reveals himself in his word and by his spirit through our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is what a natural man is. But let's be a little bit more concrete. 
shall we? Because it's really easy to talk about the natural man and we might look across the street and watch people that are walking by the way and people who aren't going to church and we'll say, oh, that's a natural man. Honey, that's a natural man. And they just need to go to church because they're a natural man. And I'm in church every week and I do my devotionals. And so I'm not a natural man. Who are the natural men in our text? So I want to stay in Acts 2. I don't want to preach a systematic theology to us. Let's go back to the Bible. So if you'll look at the fifth verse, let's find out who the natural men are that Peter is talking to in our text. These people who had not yet received the gift of the Holy Ghost. These people who had the blood of Christ on their hands. These people who thought that they were so good because they came all the way from Phrygia and they came all the way from Pamphylia and they came all the way from Arabia to come to Jerusalem and they were having a high time and they were ready for Pentecost and it was just time, honey, and they were going to have a revival. All right? So verse 5 says, And there were there, dwelling at Jerusalem, Jews and devout men from every nation under heaven. So first of all, he describes them as Jews. Now Jews are individuals who, until that time, because the church, we say, is born in Acts 2. This is the event in redemptive history where the church comes into existence, right? And so up until this time in history, if you were a Jew, for all intents and purposes, you were a part of the visible church. So Jews, these are, for Old Testament standards, church people. They had been circumcised. They kept the Passover. As a matter of fact, they were there at Pentecost because 50 days before, they were keeping the Passover at Jerusalem. They were Jews. They loved going to church. They loved shouting. They loved the tambourine. They loved doing all the church stuff. And not only does he say that they were Jews, but they were devout men. So these weren't half-stepping Jews. These weren't people that, you know, they just go to church on Sunday. And, you know, I do my devotionals every morning. I wake up at 6 o'clock in the morning, and I just pray. And I pray for long hours. And I just let God know that I just need Him. They were devout men. And they wore all of their, their, their outward ornaments. They were devout. They prayed with loud crying and tears. These were the men that did not have the Holy Ghost. Which shows that you can be unregenerate and come to church. That shows you can be baptized and not be born again. That shows that you can pray and do devotionals and you can exegete the scriptures and you can know Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic and Syriac and Boharic and and whatever the other Ethiopian language is and, and, and not be saved and not have everlasting life. Now, to be quite fair, you do need to come to church. The Bible commands that we come to church. Ordinances are necessary, because even in our text, Peter says, repent and be baptized. Baptism is an ordinance. So I'm not saying that baptism is not necessary, and I'm not saying that it is not important, but don't get it twisted. What you need is the inward reality of the Holy Spirit and baptism comes in good order. Baptism comes as a necessary uh, as a necessity by Christ's command. But you need the substance of the Holy Spirit. We need God poured out into our souls. I've been listening to the sermons of a, of a theologian, a, a preacher called J.C. Philpot. I just stumbled upon him. And in every sermon, he talks about uh, uh, experimental godliness. 
experimental religion, that he wants us to know God deep on the inside of us, beyond rehearsing prayers from a prayer book, beyond just reading the words as a dead letter, beyond just attending church as though it were a social club. We need the Holy Ghost so that there is no one who reads the words of this text which is beyond the scope of the summons of God to repent and be baptized because we got the people who are just stumped down sinners and that are just on the street corner and don't know God. He's covered the, he's covered the Muslim and the agnostic and the atheist and the Buddhist and the Roman Catholic. He's, he's, all, he's got uh, all of those people that we think of not being filled with the Holy Spirit and all the people who haven't been baptized and everyone who's not repenting of their sins but he's also got everybody in here because he has either people who are in church but know nothing of vital godliness but he also speaks to us who are born again and yet we have a body of sin that still needs to be destroyed we still have a nature that needs to be put to death we still have a place in our hearts and in our minds and in our affections that don't want God and this passage is telling us that we need to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Christian, do you hear me? You need the gift of the Holy Ghost. Well, I received the gift of the Holy Ghost 20 years ago. You need to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Well, I was baptized and there were people there and my mama took photographs. You need to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Not just yesterday, but today and tomorrow and 10 years from now. You need the Holy Ghost. So let's proceed to the second point that I proposed. Secondly, we shall consider the several motives for which the natural man or even the remains of the natural man in the believer uh, is indisposed to receive the Holy Ghost. First of all, and there are lots of motives that I could forward to you. I could be very exhaustive, but that would take all day. And I'm fine with being in church all day, but I'm going to respect your time. So all of the motives that I'm going to propose are going to be from the text. So first of all, the natural man is indisposed to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost because the Holy Ghost is holy. He says, ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. My old pastor used to say that he's not a generic spirit. He's the Holy Spirit. See, we would be fine to receive the spirit of men. We are fine to receive the praises of men. We are fine to receive a spirit that is just like everything we can find in any old kind of religion. Men are fine, and we, we, we've experienced this a lot because we're in an age where everybody is spiritual now, and everybody just has a, a relationship with some sort of spirit or, in, or other. And so we like generic spirituality. Oh, I'm spiritual. I'm just really spiritual. What does that mean? I don't know, but I'm just really spiritual. And because we are fine with a generic spirit, but genericity is the exact opposite of holiness. See, the holiness of God is demonstrated to us in the tabernacle. I love uh, illustrations from the tabernacle, and you're going to be hearing a lot of these this morning. 
In the tabernacle, the glory of God, which is a type of the Holy Spirit, dwelt in the Holy of Holies. And not anybody could just bust up in the Holy of Holies just because they felt like it. As a matter of fact, only one man could come at one time a year. And God told that man, you have to put bells on the bottom of your skirt because even you, the high priest, can't just come into my presence. Hey God, how you doing? God is not common. And you're not on a common relationship with God. God is holy. He's far beyond you. He is transcendent. His, maj- His majesty is unsearchable. And we don't like that about God. We want a God that's my homeboy. We want a Holy Spirit that just lets us do whatever we want to do. But the Holy Spirit is holy. And therefore, the carnal man does not want to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Spirit is holy. That means the Holy Spirit is clean. He's separate from all moral defilement. But the problem is that we love nasty stuff. We have vile and filthy lusts. And the Holy Spirit comes in between us and our nastiness. I was just reading in Deuteronomy, the 23rd chapter this past week. Deuteronomy is one of my favorite books. And there's a passage that says, when you go out to battle, make sure that there's a paddle on the end of your sword because you have to go out the camp to ease yourself. And then you have to bury all that up because you're not going to carry that in my presence. He says, because the God who walks in the midst of you is holy. Therefore, you shall cover your excrements. You're not going to have your nasty sins in my face. You're not going to have all your pornography and fornication in my face. You're not going to have your wicked words and your cussing in my face. You're not going to have your dressing like a hooker in my face. I am clean. You have to be clean to come into the presence of the Lord. But we, and this is why we hate God. Because what hatred is, is when there is something that stands in the way of your love, it immediately and necessarily arouses hatred. My friend and roommate Jonathan is here, and I hope he doesn't mind me telling this story because this just came to me, but it's a perfect example of uh, what I just said, that when something stands in the way of your love, it arouses hatred. So Jonathan tells me about these two church mothers back in his church in California when he was growing up, and they were frying chicken for a, uh, for a church function or something or other. And one of the church ladies said, you remember, talking to the old church, other church lady, you remember how you stole Johnny from me? And the other church lady said, I didn't steal Johnny from you. He came to me of his own free will. And so that, that whole debacle ended up degenerating into these two women flinging hot chicken grease at one another so that uh, the deacon had to come into the church and separate them because they were fighting over Johnny because somebody loved Johnny. And when the other woman came in the way of her love, it aroused hatred. And that's how we feel about our sins. And that's how we feel about our lust. And that's how we feel about our uncleanness. Our uncleanness is Johnny. And we want to fight the Holy Spirit because he's not going to let you have Johnny. He's a clean spirit. He's the Holy, Holy Ghost. The second reason why the natural man cannot receive and will not receive the gift of the Holy Ghost is because he is the Holy Ghost. And he shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now what does that mean? It means that he's God. The Holy Spirit is God. He is absolutely and exhaustively divine. 
He is not the Father, and He is not the Son. He's not the Father because the Father gives the Holy Spirit to the Son. He's not the Son because the Holy Spirit pours out the Holy Spirit upon His people. He is, however, absolutely God, and we don't like God. Men might make lip service to God, but we don't like God. We don't like God. The Westminster Larger Catechism, I can't remember what question. It says, why did men fall from the estate wherein they were created? And it said, because of our envy of God's independence and His holiness. We hate that God stands above us. We hate that God is self-contained. We hate that God has no need of us. We want to be independent. We want to be self-sufficient. And we like a Holy Spirit that tells us that we're God. We love a Spirit that tells us that you can be self-sufficient. You can be your own person. Honey, you just go, girl. And you're your own woman. And you're a self-made woman. We love that kind of Spirit that supports us in us. But when the Holy Spirit comes, He's not sharing His glory with anybody else and he's going to tell you you are a dependent creature you depend upon God you can't breathe another breath without God and not only that but you're a filthy sinner you're a vile sinner you deserve to be cast out of God's presence oh we hate that the Holy Spirit is God he's the omniscient God he searches the mind and tries the reins. The reins in the Old Testament are the kidneys which are at the innermost part of a person's body and they signify the deep recesses of the heart. It represents the secrets that you don't want nobody to tell you about. And we don't like that the Holy Spirit can see that. He can see what you do when nobody else is looking. He can see the thoughts of your mind and he brings them into account. Oh, we would like if he were not so omniscient. And we maybe would like him if he wasn't so omniscient, if he wasn't just so just if he just wasn't righteous altogether that he could see our secret sins in the light of his truth and he would just overlook them and say that's all right if he only judged the outside of the cup but he didn't look deep down on the inside of the cup if he didn't weigh the thoughts of my mind if he didn't tell me that my thoughts were altogether vanity then maybe I would receive the gift of the Holy Ghost if he didn't tell me that my heart dispositions and my intents and motives were contrary to the will of God, then maybe we would, we would receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, but the Holy Spirit won't do that because He's God. He is omniscient. He can see every part of you. He sees you all the way down. The Bible says that God's eyes are a flame of fire. That is, as whereas our eyes receive light from the, a torch or our eyes receive light from the sun. God's eyes give light. God's eyes pierce, the Bible says, to the intents and the contents of the heart. The Bible says that, that he divides soul from spirit, bone from marrow. Neither is anything hidden from his sight. Nothing is hidden from his sight. Oh, and the we don't want to receive that kind of God. Maybe a God that's a little less holy. Maybe a God that'll just sweep my sins under the rug that doesn't need an atonement for sin. And speaking of an atonement for sin, we don't like the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. Which means that He comes to bring us to Christ and tell us of our necessity 
of Christ and his person and his work. But, but men don't like Christ because Christ tells us of our helplessness. Christ tells us of our powerlessness. And hence the Bible says that when we were weak, Christ died for the ungodly. But we don't want to be told that we're weak. We want to be told that we're strong. We don't want to be told that we're helpless. We want to be told that we are strong towers of self-sufficiency. That yeah, I might have messed up a little bit. And maybe I sinned here and there. And maybe I made some mistakes in my life. But at the end of the day, I can pull myself up with my bootstraps and I can be pleasing to God by myself. If I do enough good works, I can just kind of make it good. I, if, I, if, I, if I just live holy and if I just turn over a new leaf then I can make my past sins better If I can just do x y and z of an external act then I can be pleasing in the sight of God but the spirit is the spirit of Christ and he says no you have to come by the cross there's a song that we sing and one day we're going to sing it here at this church uh, it says God's got a way and you can't go over God's got a way and you can't go under. God's got a way. And you can't go around it. You must come in at the door. Jesus is the door. And the only way you can even get the Holy Spirit is through an acknowledgement of Christ. People think that the Holy Spirit is an alternative to Christ. So you can go the, the Christ route or you can go the Spirit route. But let me help you. The devil is a liar. The way you come to the Spirit route is by the door. He's the Spirit of Christ. He's not taking you away from the old rugged cross. He's the Spirit of Christ. He's not taking you away from the blood. He's the Spirit of Christ. He's not taking you from repentance from sin and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. He is Christ's Holy Spirit. And that's why we don't like the Holy Spirit. That's why we don't want to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost because we don't want to receive Christ. But the only thing that the Spirit has to give you is Jesus. The Spirit comes and he takes from Christ and gives it to his people. The Bible says that when the Spirit comes, Christ comes by the power of his Spirit and Christ dwells in you. You can't have the Holy Ghost without Jesus. You can't be spiritual without the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And in the book of Revelation, when the Bible says that the lamb stands in the midst of the throne, he stands in the midst of the throne in the seven golden lampstands. And the seven golden lampstands are a picture of the effulgence and the fullness of the Holy Spirit. So that if you want to be in the light of the Spirit, you have to come to the blood of the lamb. We don't want the Holy Spirit because he is the Spirit of Christ. Oh, anything but, anything but Christ. Anything but Christ offered in his gospel. Maybe like a, a diminished Christ. Maybe like Muslim Jesus. That's just a prophet. I can deal with that. Maybe just Aryan Jesus. That's just a mighty creature of God. Maybe just a, maybe just a Hindu Jesus. That's just a great enlightened guru. No, because there's only one Jesus. And there's only one Holy Ghost who proceeds from the Father and the Son. He is the Holy Ghost. He is the Sovereign Spirit. The book of a Psalm, the, uh, the book of Psalms, the 51st Psalm says, And uphold me with your willing spirit. 
Uphold me with your free spirit. The word uh, for free spirit is the same word that's used for the uh, free will offering that was given in the temple. It shows the absolute freeness the willingness of the Holy Spirit. One, it shows the willingness of the Holy Spirit to receive repentant sinners, but it also shows the freeness of the Holy Spirit to save anybody that He pleases. And men do not want to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost because we like a Holy Spirit that we can control. That's why men love external ordinances as opposed to vital religion. Now, I love external ordinances. This is something that gets me, because, you know, I, I almost became an Anglican because I just like all the, I like the chalices and I like the gold and I like the robes and I like the gold leaf and, and wearing the special shoes. And you can be very much tempted because of the beauty of the liturgy to be like Jeroboam the first that says, it's too much for you to go down to Jerusalem. It's too much for you to really get a deep relationship with the Holy Spirit. It's too much for you to come down and repent of your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's too much for you to realize your wretchedness and your nakedness and your blindness and your powerlessness. It's too much for you to do that. So why don't you just come to this golden calf that we have? It's so close nearby. and It's so much easier just to show up at church. And it's so much more easy just to take the cup and drink the bread. Vital godliness is so much more difficult. What the Spirit does in regeneration, in Making you a new creature is far more difficult than mere external conformity to rules and ordinances. Oh, I love ordinances. Once again, baptism is an ordinance. We're going to get to that here in a moment. I love rules. I love, the, I love the law of the Lord. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit comes and he writes the law of God on the hearts of his people. So there is no antinomianism that is here. But neither of those things without the effectual working of the Holy Spirit in, by, and with them can do anything for you. But we want to use them because we think that I can manipulate God. So I can go and sin all week long. And if I just show up here, then I can just be, I can just be washed and hallelujah. Hallelujah. I had a friend years ago who would tell me he lived a, just a riotous lifestyle. He said, I just like going down to this church because I don't really believe the stuff that they teach out there. But when I go, I just feel clean. I just feel better. And then he goes back to his filthiness. Then he goes back to his world of sin. And that's because we think that showing up in church can, can take the dial like a faucet. So that when I want a little bit of the Holy Spirit, I come to church and I turn on the faucet. And then when I don't want them, I turn, off the, I turn off the faucet and I go on and live my life. And when I need another dose of the Holy Spirit, I turn on the faucet. But the Holy Spirit doesn't work that way. He is a person, a living person, a sovereign person. The Holy Spirit is God. And men do not want to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost because he is the sovereign God. The Spirit bloweth where he listeth. Thirdly, the spirit, the carnal man, or the, those who are in a state of nature, do not want to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost because he is to be received as a gift. For he says, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Eternal life, which he brings, cannot be bought. Eternal life which he gives cannot be debated for or negotiated. Eternal life and admission to, admission to the, uh, the presence of God cannot be bartered for. Eternal life and the eternity, the eternal welfare of our souls can only be begged for. You can only cry to God. 
The only arguments that you can make for the receiving of the Holy Ghost is the argument of your misery and Christ's mercy and the merits of the mediator. You can only say, God, have mercy on me because my sins are great. You can't come to God and say, God, have mercy on me because I'm just a wonderful person and I just wear these church hats and I just wear all these wonderful clothes and I have all this money and I'm just so beautiful, God, and you would just be really great if I was on your team and I'm just really intellectual and I've gone to seminary and I know all these languages and I've been preaching for 20 years. You cannot buy the Holy Ghost. And what God is going to say to you if you try to come to him and receive the benefit of his Holy Spirit and receive the person of his Holy Spirit by your merit, he will say just to you what Peter said to Simon the sorcerer. You and your merits can go straight to hell because you cannot buy the Holy Ghost. Your good deeds are not enough to get the Holy Ghost. He's God. God doesn't need you. He's the Most High. What can you do? What can you do to cause God to love you? What can you do to cause God to be favorable to you? You are a vile serpent in God's sight. You are a worm in the dung before God. There is nothing that you can do to make God even inclined to you one bit except beg to God for his mercy. We have too much pride. We have too much haughtiness. We think God owes us something other than eternal damnation away from the Lord and the presence of his might. He is to be received as a gift. Nothing in my hands I bring. It's only to thy cross I cling. And now that we have exposed the root of our intransigence, we now turn to the exercise of this duty. He says, repent and be baptized and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And the use to be made of this doctrine is twofold and appears right in our text. You must repent and be baptized. So first of all, you must repent. What is repentance? Repentance is not merely something that you say with your mouth. Repentance is not merely saying, oh God, I'm sorry, I just did it again. Repentance, first of all, has to do with a contrition of the heart. Repentance can only come when you see the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his glory and you see that your sins pierced through the Lord of glory. Horatius Bonar has a book called The Blood of the Cross. And in the first uh, chapter of The Blood of the Cross, he points out how the Jews killed Jesus. And he says that uh, when Peter speaks to them, and I believe it's Acts, the third chapter, he, the, the Jews respond to Peter's preaching by saying, this man would require the blood of Christ at our hands. And he says, yes, and God did require the blood of Christ at their hands. They thought that because they shipped Jesus off to the Romans and the Romans crucified him, then they couldn't be charged as guilty of the sin of crucifying the Messiah. And so he says, they charged his blood to us. And he says, yes, 
He does charge his blood to us. And we can sit up and look at the Pharisees and the Sadducees and say, yeah, they're Christ killers. And yeah, they killed the Messiah. And yeah, they're God murderers. But we're out here. And I had nothing to do with the crucifixion of Christ. And Horatius Bonar goes on to say that unless you close with Christ in his gospel, you actually concur with every person that cried, crucify him, crucify him. If you do not serve Jesus as God, then you are agreeing with the claim that he was a false claimant to deity and worship and to the ability to forgive sins. You, by your sins, have crucified the Son of God. Your sins have pierced through the only begotten Son. Until you believe what the Lord Jesus Christ says about his Messiahship, your sins are the nails that pierced his hands and his feet. We are not enough acquainted to the misery of our sin. The Bible gives sin to us by so many metaphors like leprosy, like dung, like urine, like all of these unclean things so that we can see just how vile God sees us. And until you get the sense of the odiousness of sin and the sinfulness of sin, unless the law comes to you and says that your sins deserve everlasting damnation in hell, you will never grieve for your sins. You will never truly repent. You can only say, I know that the Bible says this is the sin, but you'll never see the sinfulness of sin. You can see the outward ends of sin. You can see the outcome of sin. You can see the hell of sin, but you'll always yearn for sin inwardly. And, and true repentance is the vomit of the soul. True repentance is when we see the odiousness of sin, its vileness to God, its hatefulness to Christ, its piercing through of the Lord Jesus. The sins which we have committed are the crown of thorns that tear apart our Savior's brow. The sins which we commit grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Until we see our sins in the light of God's word, we will never truly have gospel repentance. You must repent. You must be persuaded of the sinfulness of sin. And out of the sinfulness of sin, then you see the mercy of God offered in Jesus Christ. You see God's arms, the Lord Jesus Christ's arms open wide for you on the cross. You see the Lord Jesus offering up himself an oblation to God and saying, Come unto me, all that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And when you see Christ, your Savior, and when you see the vileness of your sins, you do nothing but you fly to Christ. You fly to Christ. You fly to the foot of the cross. You fly to where his blood flowed down out of his side and out of his hands and out of his feet and out of his face. You fly to the bloody, wretched Christ who is beaten and bloodied for you. You see the mangled Messiah hanging on the cross. This is what the Holy Spirit does. He says, this is your salvation from the fire. This is repentance. It's a fleeing from sin to Christ. It's a fleeing from self to Christ. It's a fleeing from Satan to Christ. It's a fleeing from secularity to Christ. Oh, do you know about repentance, sinner? True repentance. 
True repentance. True repentance where the Bible says, I believe it's in the book of Zechariah, it says that when God pours out the spirit of supplication on the house of Israel, that the house of David and the house of Jesse goes and they weep in houses apart in the house of the Levites and the house of Aaron go and they weep in houses apart because of the shame that covers them when they realize that they have pierced God and they go and they weep. They don't want to be looked at. They don't want to be celebrated. They don't want to be affirmed. They go and they weep and they weep and they weep and they beg God for mercy. They weep in houses apart. They don't want to be seen. They don't want you to see their nastiness. They don't want you to see their nakedness. They don't want you to see their uncomeliness. The Bible says that when God pours out the Holy Spirit upon us, that we'll put our hand over our mouth and we will not say another word because of our sin. And anything that God does to us, if he sins a difficulty, if he sins harm, if he sins hurt, we'll say, there's nothing that I can say because I'm only receiving the chastisement of my sin. Repentance is seeing my vileness in God's sight, in the light of the mirror of God's word. Before we can receive the Holy Spirit in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies, we have to come to the brazen laver that's polished like a mirror so that when we wash ourselves, we can just see how ugly we really are. You have to repent. Daily repentance, daily brokenness. That's why the Bible says, a broken and a contrite heart. God will not despise. Are you broken? Can you detect in your soul brokenness over your sin? Can you detect in yourself a loathing of self because of your wickedness before God? You must repent. And secondly, he says, repent and be baptized. Now, you need to be baptized, that is, to be immersed in water, the second, the first sacrament of the Christian faith, that you have to be baptized and you have to be immersed in water and raised as a signification of our union with Christ in his burial and in his resurrection. And this is, uh, he's communicating us a union with Christ by virtue of the similitude of baptism. He's communicating to us what faith does for us by speaking of the sacrament of baptism. You need to be baptized in water. But the most important thing is that he's trying to get us to see the inside of the sacrament. He wants us to be Baptized, that is, as Peter says, we are saved through baptism, not by the washing of water, but by the answer of a clean conscience to God. He wants us to be baptized, to be immersed, identified, embraced by the nail-pierced hands of the Lord Jesus Christ, to be baptized, to be absolutely inundated with all that Christ is and all that Christ has done for us. He wants us to be baptized. You might object, well, here the text says that you need to repent and be baptized and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, but this church won't let me be baptized today. And so if Peter is saying that this is something that is so important that I need to be baptized, well, what's wrong with this church that won't baptize me today if I want to get baptized? Because you think that I have to go to this class to make sure that my, my, my confession of faith is right before I get baptized and all this kind of stuff. That is, that is absolutely correct. 
Uh, we, we will withhold baptism from you because baptism is a sign and a seal of something that's already been done in your heart and in your life. It is true that the baptismal that is behind me right now is dry, but the fountain that's filled with the blood of Jesus is full. And you can come right now and be baptized. The fountain that's filled with the mercy of God is full. And you can come and receive the mercy of Christ as you flee to him as your Savior. The blood of Christ is full of redemption for lost sinners. You don't have to wait for the laver to be full. The laver of redemption in Christ is always full. You can call him in the morning and you can call him at the midday and you can call him in the midnight hour. He's just one prayer away. Christ is ready to receive you. He's ready to cleanse you. He's ready to save you if you would just turn from your sin and embrace all that Christ is for you. He is robed in all of his priestly garments to embrace the vilest sin sinner, the vilest offender that truly believes. Before you even get baptized, that moment a pardon from Jesus receives. That moment. You can have the substance of baptism this moment. As Augustine once says of the, of the supper, believe and you have eaten. I can say of the laver, believe and you have been baptized. And you need to be physically baptized in good order. But believe and receive the substance of baptism of which the water is only a sign. Secondly, objection. Well, I've already been baptized. You're telling me that I need to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And I've already been baptized. I was baptized 20 years ago. So are you saying that, that I have to be baptized again? Are you saying that I have to go back and I have to, they have to fill up this pool for me and, and then I have to get baptized over and over? I know people like that. Whenever they feel like they're in a, some sort of dry season in their life, they have to get baptized a second time. And whenever they feel like they're in another dry season in their life, they have to be baptized a third time. I know people who've been baptized five times. Because they put so much stock, and this comes once again to the naturalness of, our, of, of who we are, of the fleshiness of who we are. We think that there's some sort of magic in the water of baptism, but there's nothing in the water of baptism other than God's command. There is a wonderful charism, a wonderful grace which God gives to us in baptism. There is a mystery in baptism that I shall not take away from, but... Baptism does not need to be repeated for you to be baptized in the sense that I am speaking of. I'm glad that you were baptized 20 years ago. I'm glad that you were baptized two years ago. Or like Mara, you were baptized last year. Yeah, you baptized last year. I'm glad that you were baptized. But the answer when you are fighting the good fight of faith is not to go to the water again. It's to go to Christ again. It's to wake up and go to the Lord Jesus again. I think of the passage in 1 Timothy where Paul says to, to Timothy, stir up the gift that is in thee by the laying on of my hands. And then he says again, do not neglect the gift that was in thee by the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. In the ordination service of Timothy, there was a gift, a charism that was given to Timothy when the hands were laid on him. But when, P when Timothy is going through a difficulty, when 
When Timothy is struggling with sinners and dealing with church discipline and dealing with his own godliness and dealing with the weights of the world, the, the apostle doesn't say, go back and find the presbytery so they can lay hands on you again. And go find me so I can lay hands on you a second time. He doesn't say, go through the ordinance again. He says, stir up the gift that was in thee by the laying on of hands. And I may say that every Christian who is wearied by the battle of your sins as you continue daily to repent and you continue daily to believe and you're weary. You don't have to be weary in well-doing. You don't have to wait for us to fill the baptismal pool again, but you can stir up the gift that is in you. You can stir up the gift of the Holy Ghost. You can stir what God has put in you by His sovereign administration. You can stir up the gift of the Holy Ghost by praying and supplicating and communing with God and reading the Word. And even though you might feel dry in the outward ordinance, you can trust that God is with you because He promised to be there. We're about to take the Lord's Supper and you might not feel like you want to take the Lord's Supper. We're about to take the Lord's Supper and you not, might not feel like you're worthy to take the Lord's Supper and you feel like you've been beaten by Satan all week long and you feel like you've been beaten by sin all week long and you feel like your whole Christian life has been a struggle from going one from one sin to another sin and you feel so defeated and you feel so nasty and you feel so burdened but I can tell you that you can be baptized by stirring up the grace of baptism that is in you. So the Bible says that Jesus washes us with the washing of water by the word. The words that I'm preaching to you right now, Jesus is washing you. Have you sinned this week? Have you sinned grievously this week? Have your, has your life been a provocation in the eyes of God this week? If you have closed with Christ in his holy gospel, Jesus is washing you right now. You're being baptized again right now. You're being filled with the Holy Ghost again right now. Because he's being given as a gift. Christ has not ceased to pour out the gift of the Holy Spirit. Lastly, let me exhort you to know that you must receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. The Bible says that if any man hath not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And that if you do not turn from your sin and cleave to Christ as he's offered in the gospel, and you do not receive the Holy Spirit as a gift, that just as the Lord Jesus Christ, who would have been your Savior, shall stand before you and shall be your judge, so too shall the Holy Spirit, who would have been your comforter, shall for everlasting be your tormentor. The Bible says that Tophet is prepared. It is deep and wide, and the breath of the Almighty, like a stream of sulfur, doth kindle it. And just as the Spirit of the Lord proceeds from the tree of life under the similitude of the river, which flows from the tree of life and from the throne of God and the Lamb, so too the fires of hell are the similitude of the Spirit working as a spirit of judgment and as a spirit of wrath. And he shall lash you with the everlasting indignation nation of God by his omnipotent hand unless you turn from your sins and believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent. 
and be baptized, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Be ye saved from this crooked generation. Let us pray. Father God, we know that though it is our duty to repent, and you command us to repent, and we are to exercise ourselves in repentance, we come to you needy, recognizing, Lord, that if we repent, you must convert us. Convert us, O Lord, and we will be converted. Save us, O Lord, and we will be saved. Grant us repentance, Lord Jesus, you who sit at the right hand of the Father. O Lord, if there's someone in this room who does, has not repented of their sins and has not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and who has not received of the Holy Spirit, O Lord, would you open their hearts to receive? Only you can do it. I can't preach hard enough for it to happen. Only you can do it. So we sue for your mercy on the grounds of our misery. And we ask you to receive this, our imperfect gift and service. For the merits of Jesus Christ, your only Son, O Heavenly Father, our Lord. Amen.